Praise the Lord. Wow. You... Ah, I don't think I've seen 3 p.m. this full ever in my life, really. So thank you for coming. Um, wow. This is, uh, this is huge. I don't know if I will be able to preach. This is, it can be very emotional for me. We have tissue. Thanks for your help. Um, very privileged to be here. Um, I, I think I left my wife. She's, she's going to be around somewhere. She's somewhere. She's coming. Um, I just want to say thank you uh, for all the messages and uh, the love I have felt loved by you guys. And I am really, really, really blessed. Um, it is going to be sad for me to leave you guys. Um, I, have, I was born and raised, so to speak, here. Um, and I've grown through the ministry 22 years, to be more specific, the youth ministry. Um, and I am really, really grateful to God for the privilege he has given me to serve with you and to serve you um, and to serve him. So before we, we start off, allow me to pray and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this moment. Thank you for the privilege to proclaim your word. Now, Lord, I, I ask that you give me strength to preach your word boldly in spite of the emotions. And help me, Lord, to speak it clearly so that your people may hear you. Silence every other voice, even if it is my own, that yours alone be heard. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'm going to start off with uh, a bit of a, an experience that I've had over time. I was about five years old when I first sat behind the wheel. Five years old. Um, so yeah, my dad was there. I sat on his lap, and I, was, uh, I, I, I held the steering wheel um, of, this, of this car that he, was very precious to him. I sat behind the wheel, and he would tell me, turn right, turn left, and that's all I would do. At that age, I was exhilarated. I was excited that I had moved a car from one point to another. I had turned left and turned right. But the thing that was most exciting was that I was, he was the one in control, of everything. He was the one in control of everything. He just directed me how, what to do with the steering wheel. But for me, I felt like <laughs> I was the one driving the car. It was so exciting. It was so... I, I, was, I was blown away by that experience uh, for me. About 20 years later, he's seated on the side. Uh, the, what is that? Um, Co-driver's seat, yeah. Whew. What's that leaving? Um, Co-driver's seat, and he was there um, directing me. I'd never been as frightened about any machine as I was in that moment. It was a manual car, stick shift. So that, you, you know, for those of you who have, who have driven manuals, when, when, when there is some tension, your leg decides to, to go numb, and you, you shake quite a bit. It was nerve-wracking, but... My dad was still there on the side telling me what to do. 
it was a little more, there was a little more direction. And this time I was in a little more control of the car. A few years later, he would then send me, go and get so and so, go and get this. In that same car, that very same car. Yeah. And so I had, I had that privilege, that experience with that car. But it was his. It was his car. He bought with his money. And it was very precious to him. He gave it to me to drive around. Um, and you can see those three stages as we are thinking. Um, as we think through the portion of scripture we are going to read, I want to ask that you, you keep in mind that, that illustration, that story. Um, and so today, if I were to if I were to, to, to title this someone, I'd call it Not Your Church. Not Your Church. Not My Church. Okay? So, recently there I am in the car and holding my son Caleb, and he's doing the very same thing. Excited. Well, he's just six months, but you know, the way I look at it, he's excited. He's just beating the steering wheel and biting it, but he's excited. And it got me feeling a certain type of way. I just began to remember all those experiences that I had. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. If you may, please. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. Before we, we go and dig deep into the scripture... Just, just to give you a brief background, Matthew's intention for writing that gospel, that narrative, was that he was writing predominantly to the Jewish culture, predominantly to the Jewish culture, that, and the, or the Jewish people that were believers, okay? So we get to see some of the illustrations, some of the things that were said, some of the things that were written, some of the references. It was clear that there was predominantly a Jewish um, uh, audience or readership, all right? And, and we get to see, for instance, there are five major discourses or monologues where Jesus is talking for a very long time, from chapter 5 to chapter 7, for instance. It's a lot of Jesus' words, and there are five, kind of corresponding to the five books of the Torah, okay? Um, and so we get to see a lot about the promised Messiah, which is, he was making reference to the Messiah as if you knew, you, the people that he was writing to knew about those promises of the Messiah. So that's why we're saying it is predominantly written to the Jewish culture. And it's very important for us as we study chapter 16 to have that in mind, okay? So, so chapter 16 starts off um, with the, the usual suspects, the Pharisees, you know, asking, asking for a sign. Now, if, if you pay attention to Jesus' response, it, it is very clear that he, it, he, this, this was not the first time it had happened. The Pharisees asking for a sign. Chapter 12 of, of Matthew, they asked for a sign. And he gave a longer uh, answer at that point. Okay? So, we, we get to see, but these are 15 chapters later. 
Jesus has done amazing things. He has done amazing signs. He has taught in amazing ways. He is incredible. Everyone is talking about him. He has fed, excuse me, he has fed, and he has, he has fed 5,000 people, another 4,000 people. He has walked on water. Stories are going around about this guy, and these Pharisees are still asking for a sign. Asking for a sign. And they are Pharisees, teachers of the law. The prophets of old had prophesied about him, and these signs would follow him. These people knew, but the Pharisees still asked for a sign. Show us a sign from heaven. Let's just pause right there. And maybe this might be a point for you to reflect on in your relationship with God. What are the signs you've been asking for? Because they have been there. We've all asked God for a sign to do something for you. All the while, the grandest sign that he has ever shown us is the cross. If we embraced the idea of the cross, we might not need to ask for any more signs. These Pharisees, he calls them a wicked and adulterous generation. You ask for a sign. There was a reason why they were asking for it. And their hearts were full of wickedness and adultery. They were paying more attention to the, to the signs of Jesus than they were to Jesus himself. So there he goes. And then he warns the disciples later on about the living that the Pharisees are going to, or the living bread, or the yeast in the bread. He warned them about the yeast. And these disciples were saying, so because there was an issue, they didn't have bread and they had gone someplace. And so they were beginning to wonder, okay, so should, I think Jesus was talking about the bread. Is it the bread that we had issues with? And Jesus tells them, but how can you have so little faith? Look, I just fed 4,000 people with just five loaves of bread. Okay, so that's not what I'm talking about. Then they got to understand that they were talking about the teaching of the Pharisee. The teaching of the Pharisees. And that was what he was saying was, be careful about their teaching. All right? And that begins our, where we are going to start off, our main portion, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not, has not revealed this to you, but the, my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And they strictly charged the disciples to tell no one, that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. 
Now, I am going to I'm going to divide this into a number of questions that we'll have to think about as we ponder on this portion of Scripture. Verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, what do people say the Son of Man is? The first question that I want to leave you with is, who do they say he is? And if I want to bracket that, I will say, know where they are. So we're talking about, I will build my church, right? And for Jesus to build his church, there is a certain process. And that's what we're going to discuss here. And the first one is know where they are. Who do they say he is? So just to point out a little bit about the place, Caesarea Philippi. This was in a region where there was a lot of idolatry. All right? There was a Greek god called Pan. Uh, this was the area where Baal was worshipped the most. This was an area where um, I think it was Caesar Augustus was made a god. It was in this area that Jesus was going through that he chose to ask the question, what do they say I am? Who do they say I am? It was there that Jesus asked that question. Where there is idolatry, where there is Pharisaic opposition, where there are people that just simply are. Was Jesus asking this question so that he can know what people are saying about him? If that's the case, then the, we will put in question his omniscience. He probably knew what they say. And so the question is, he was asking them, do they know? what people are saying about him. Do they know where the people are? And maybe we'll pose that same question to you. Do you know where your people are? That family member? Those people in your workplaces? That schoolmate of yours? That roommate? That dormmate? That whatever it is, that person around you, do you know what they say about Jesus? Or... Are you the one Jesus is asking others about? Are we together? Do you understand what I'm saying? Is, is it someone Jesus is asking, what does he say about me? What would that answer be? Do you know what they say about Jesus? Do I know what they say about Jesus? So, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And the reason they are using these prophets is because these are great names. They did great things that were similar to what Jesus was doing. All right? Elijah with that never-ending flour, and then think about Jesus and the bread. Um, and then, you know, opening the eyes of the blind, think about Elisha. Um, think about how Jeremiah was talking at length, and challenging people. And then think about the discourses of Jesus. So they were saying that he was one of these who had come back. And quite besides, there was a prophecy that Elijah would return. So this is, they were sort of aware of what people were saying. 
And then Jesus asked, what do you say? Or who do you say I am? And that's the second point. Who do they say I am is the first. Who do you say I am is the second. Know where you are. Know where you are. I mean, you've been here at least for five years that I have been a pastor here. You, I have, <laughs> you've been here. And you have had someone after someone, gospel after gospel. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Verse 15, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, remember, this is a Jewish audience, a Jewish people that he's writing to. This phrase, as far as the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Jews are concerned, is blasphemous. You are liable to being stoned to death because of a statement of this nature. Peter, on behalf of the disciples, says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So, Peter, knowing that this is blasphemous and it can get him stoned, he knows this, but he, if, he, if what he says is the truth and he believes it, he is saying it straight to the Son of God who is standing right before him. I mean, think about it. Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, is the one you're standing before and declaring that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. No wonder Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for it was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. This revelation could not come from anywhere else but God. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the promised one, the one true King, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Savior and Redeemer of the world, the promised one of Israel. That is the one Simon Peter is looking at face to face. Third, what does he say he is? Or who does he say he is? So, who do they say he is? Who do you say he is? Who does he say he is? And when we know these, we begin to understand a whole lot better what it means. And then verse 18 says, and I tell you, that you are Peter. So he affirms what Peter's saying is true. And he says, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not overcome. In this verse, we shall just think about three things. Number one, on this rock. Number two, I will build. And number three, my church. Okay. On the rock. On this rock. Peter's confession makes Jesus excited and says, I'm going to call you rock. Because th upon the thing that you have confessed, you are going to be rock. You are going to be the rock on which I 
build my church. Upon the understanding that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Son of God, he's the Redeemer, he's the one that takes you from darkness into his marvelous light. He, that is what makes Peter the rock upon which he, Peter, and the apostles that know that this is the truth become the foundation on which the church is built. Therefore, I want to read verse, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. It says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So it, is important, it was very important for, Pete, for, for Jesus to be very clear to them that this is the rock, this is the foundation, this is what I am going to. Jesus is not the foundation, he's the builder of the church. Are we together? The foundation is the idea that he is Christ, the Savior. I build, I will build, I will build. Have you ever seen construct, uh, construction builders, the guys that, you know, lay the bricks, those guys, eh? they call them lay workers or something like that. Have you ever seen anyone come and say, I'm, I'm building my, my building? No. They know it is a chizimbe chomugaga. Yeah, they know. That that is someone, someone is building the house. Me, I'm just the servant. I'm the one who is laying the bricks. In the same way, Jesus is the builder of the church. We just happen to be his servants in the process of building. And I think that for me, this this has, in my experience, relieved me a lot of all the pressure that I was thrown at in the, last, in the five years I was serving here. The pressure to, to build numbers. Now I'm leaving and you guys are here. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, Jesus has built, right? Yeah, yeah. But there was some, <laughs> there was some guys would ask me, but what's wrong? Why, why isn't the 3PM growing? You know? What are we not doing right? And of course, some people would leave because some of our summons were, were difficult to understand. Some were not, were not agreeable to others, and they're like, ah, ah, there's no spirit there anymore. You guys are just. It was hard. The pressure, the pressure to increase numbers. Yeah, la, la, la. Only Jesus is the one who. who you know, kept me on the street. And I know what he had called me to do. And it, it wasn't really to increase the numbers because that's not me who does. Jesus, God is the one who adds the numbers. Yeah? We, we did that at camp. His numbers were added. It was not... So, for me, he had called me to teach the truth. And that's all. But the pressure to go and be like those churches. <laughs> pressure was mob. So I'd come here, there would be some Sundays. I'm like, oh, well, we just do a fellowship. Like, maybe just gather here. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah, make a circle and things. Yeah. But I think for me, 
the statement, I will build. I, Jesus, will be the one to build. This cornerstone, <laughs> the builder, the savior of the world, he is the one who is going to build. That relieved me from a lot of pressure to want to build. And, and we've seen it. it. When people begin to possess the church, this is my church, I will do with it what I want. Hey. Then you begin to see, Jesus is not Lord in that church. The, the pastor is. The reverend is. Yeah, they are the lords. Whatever they say, goes. But Jesus says, I will build. I will build. We are simply his servants, privileged with the work of building. And perhaps because he has trusted us to do that. He has allowed us to do that. Thirdly, my church. I will build my church. My gathering. My people. People that have been called by my name. So the word church, um, as, as written, church, appears first in the Old Testament. But ideally, it refers to a gathering, an assembly of people. And we get to see that first when the nation of Israel was gathered unto the Lord. Okay? We get to see a lot of that in Deuteronomy and in Exodus. That, that the, the church was the nation of Israel, the gathering unto himself, a people for his own glory. That was church. And the idea was to set up the kingdom of God. And so, it is important. You know, most of you who are passionate about the gospel, this the whole idea that Jesus is the one who builds the church, he lifts the burden off of you to want to wonder, okay, am I, am I evangelizing enough? Should I do more? No, now you are, you are in fellowship with God. He is the one who does the building. He's the one who does the conviction. He's the one who brings people into his marvelous light. Mine is to just do as he tells me. Jesus says that, who are my father and mother and sisters? And they these that do the will of my father. That's all. Doing his will. So people who are gathered to himself, to gathered to God, are those that do his will. Those that live by his precepts. Those that understand his decrees. And are therefore able to declare these decrees. Are we together? Yeah, yeah. We don't make up declarations and decrees. No, they are God's decrees. If you read Psalm 119, all of it, you will understand. The decrees are of the Lord. All we do is to declare them. We are speaking the Lord's decrees. Are we together? That's what the church is. That's the one that Jesus is going to build. That's the church that you and I hopefully belong to. As I conclude, I'll call this the end game. 
pun intended and everything. <laughs> Why is Jesus doing all this? Why are we t- learning about all of this? I will build my church. The kingdom of God. He says in verse 19, to Peter, are we together? To Peter, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In order for us to know, you know what these keys are, we need to understand what the kingdom of God is. What, what are the keys opening? Where are we going? And he's saying the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. This kingdom of God has been a theme all through the scriptures. I'll just give you two Old Testament scriptures. In Exodus 15, verse 18, you can just write those down. He says, the Lord reigns forever and ever. The word is reign. The key word there is reigning. That's the Lord reigns forever. David, and and when when the, the Lord reigns forever in Exodus 15, Moses and Miriam are singing after God has delivered them from Pharaoh. Right? David then also writes, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. There are numerous other portions of scripture in the Old Testament that refer to the kingdom of God. He is king. He is, and so king is not the same as president. President is chosen by the people. The king is, is king. Are we together? Hey. He's the one who appoints people. And so, when, when, when the, the Israelites wanted their own king, God looked at it as a rejection. Are we together? He delivers them. He sets them free. He makes them a nation. And they're like, we want a king. And so, he tells, he tells Samuel, no, don't worry. It's not you they are rejecting. It is me they have rejected. He The Lord God is the king. In the New Testament, we get to see a lot of that, and especially in Matthew. When you read Matthew 13, there is a number of parables that point to the kingdom of God. And Jesus makes it look like it is something that grows. A seed, mustard seed, um, yeast, you know, a tree that grows and so the idea of the kingdom of God is something that grows. And Luke says it is not a kingdom that you say it is there. It is not territorial. The kingdom of God is not about territory. Let me make this very clear, people. The kingdom of God is neither here nor there. The kingdom of God is in your heart. Where Jesus is Lord and Savior. Where he is king. That's where the kingdom is, where his rule is, where his reign is, where his authority is, where his power is fully. That is the kingdom of God. It is not about places. Are we together? Yeah, because the earth belongs to the Lord and all there in it. It doesn't matter who thinks they have possessed it and bewitched it. The point I am trying to make here is that God is above all of that. And he has established his kingdom in our hearts. That is why he gathers people to himself that allow him to be king. 
Those are his. Those are the ones he has elected as his own. Those are his people. Are you his? If you are, ladies and gentlemen, the bombardment of the reality of what Jesus is must be seen in how you live. It must be seen in how you live. See how Peter responds in chapter 2 when people ask, are you guys drunk? When they start speaking in in tongues. When Peter, this very same Peter that is being referred to, when he starts opening his mouth, he says stuff, and at the end they say people were cut to their hearts. And then they ask, what shall we do? (laughs) What can we do? He tells them, repent. What did he say? That's the key to the kingdom of God. To enter the kingdom of God, there was a necessity for keys. And Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And what are these keys? The word of God. Because that's what Peter did. That day when 3,000 came to him, he declared the word of God. Unadulterated, unequivocally, he was very, very brave, very bold, and declared the word of God. And he said, you are the ones who crucified him. They were convicted. They decided they needed to repent. They needed to change their ways. And they received Jesus as though that day 3,000 gave their lives to Jesus. The word of God, the truth of God. When Jesus says sanctify them, he's praying for them in John. Sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. And he calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. That is what the key is. It is not about performance as a Christian. And if I were to leave with any words today, leave you with any words, it is not about your performance as a believer that you will enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, still in Matthew, Jesus warns, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But those who do what? The will of my father. And he says, and he qualifies that, he says, they will prophesy, they will do miracles, they will do great things, and I will say, away from me. There is no more, there's no, like that scripture has never been that as sobering for me as it is these days. That it is quite possible for us to get caught up in all sorts of gymnastics and lose it. Why? Because our motives are about our performance as Christians. When it is all about his truth. The one that sanctifies us. The one that causes us to be more like him. So, 
my season has ended. And by the looks of things, God has done some work. I have just been privileged to be a part of what God is doing. I was sharing with the leaders, and I guess I, sh- I need to share this with you as well. Those of you who remember Rev. J's season, he always said that for him the word was hope, and he was a gatherer. People just came from everywhere and just brought them in the fold, right? When I came in, yeah, we fell on hard times, eh? <laughs> no, uh, my season was refining, pruning. What God called me, it was very clear that there are many among us who need to be chiseled by his word. And so the season went. And some, I use, I use the illustration of gold. When you're extracting gold, it comes with all the gunk from, from the ores, right? When you're refining the gold, it is going through the fires. It is not as big as it was when it was gathered. Are we together? It goes through the fires to be refined. The next season, should you remain faithful to his word. I believe that God is going to show up in ways you have never seen in your lives. Why? Not because of anything that you have done, but because his word has sanctified you. Of this I am certain, that should you remain true and faithful to his leading, should you keep continuously following his teaching, if you are not swayed by the wolves that are around, if you hold firm to the truth of the scriptures, God is going to do amazing things in this season such as never before. Reverend Jared is my friend. He's my friend. I, 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 I have no doubt that this next season, should you guys stay in the Lord, where God leads him, it is going to be amazing to watch. Because I, call that, I will call that season the season of display. Manifestation. For Nehru. He's going to display himself in ways only he can show up and because you are being refined continuously by his truth. That's what the disciples were going through those three years. And maybe, maybe for some of us, it is important that we are encouraged that way. That you hold on to the truth. Hold on to Jesus, the one that builds the church. Trust him to build the church. And simply do as he wills. Simply do as he wills. 
It has been my greatest pleasure to serve you. It has been my greatest pleasure. Guys, it's not it's the weather. The weather is the one that's... There's dust and such. Anyway, it has been my greatest pleasure to bless if I have. And if in any way, for some of us, I have harmed or hurt you in the things I've said or taught or the way I've led my life, do forgive me. I'm simply a human being that God has saved and continues to sanctify with his own truth. But thank you. Those of you who have endured the, the, the difficult summons and the ones where you're like, ha. Huh. Anyway, he preached. He preached. Thank you for praying for me. I know there are some who, 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 who were wary of what was going on. They couldn't quite understand where God was leading us. And it just seemed like, what is happening to the youth ministry? I will no longer see you guys. You are no longer here. Da, 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 da. Hey. God was working things out in ways only he could. In the silent ambers that burn, he was refining us. And of this, I am certain. God bless you.